Good day, everyone. Welcome to Live with Doug as we are continuing our study of the book of Isaiah. I'm curious, uh, for those of you who are joining us in this study, uh, have you spent a lot of time in uh, Isaiah? Uh, as I did a little uh, survey uh, before we launched into this, deciding which uh, which book to get into, it uh, seems like the response I got was there's a lot of people that have not spent much time in Isaiah. I would be one of them as well. Uh, and uh, this has been a, a rich study for me, so I hope it is for you as well. Good morning, Anthony. Glad you could join us. And uh, Tim and Keith and the rest of you, glad you're with us this morning. All right, so we uh, last week we finished up by looking at Deuteronomy 32, the Song of Moses, as it gave a snapshot a thousand years prior to Isaiah, a snapshot of what was going to happen with Israel. And in Isaiah's prophecies, we see the same kinds of things that uh, do, that Moses wrote about, sang about in the Song of Moses. And today we're going to see some of this un, unpack or unfold. Uh, so we're going to pick up in verse 7 of chapter 1, where God says this, Your land is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Your fields, strangers are devouring them in your presence. It is desolation as overthrown by strangers. So just to recap here, remember Isaiah is seeing this vision. God gives him uh, this preview of what's coming for Judah and Jerusalem. This is sometime a hundred years before the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 BC. And he says here, your land is desolate. Isaiah sees uh, the cities being burned and strangers running uh, the city and, and the, the city being desolate, as he said. For us as Americans, I know we're not all Americans, uh, right, Tim? Uh, I think if I recall correctly, you're in the UK. Uh, we're not all Americans here, but we all remember, if you're, if you're old enough to remember, you remember where you were on 9-11, right? You remember the significance, and even for those outside of the U.S., it was a uh, it was a big deal. It it just grabbed us all, and it was it, it was the event, the shock, the unexpected, all that. And you remember there were planes heading or a plane heading toward D.C. and D.C. Washington D.C. the capital of the U.S., the capital of America, and if we think about a uh, an enemy destroying Washington D.C., like literally destroying the city, that's kind of what Isaiah here is seeing as he sees the cities of uh, Judah and and the capital city Jerusalem being uh, desolate. You know, we we joke here in the U.S. We, we talk about drain the swamp and that kind of thing, and and. Uh, we sometimes joke, oh, let's just burn it all down. Let's let's start over. And there's an element uh, of, uh, there, there's a lot of things about our capital, and probably uh, many people would say the capital of their nations, they'd like to see some drastic changes there, right? We, let's, let's get all the politicians out of office and start over kind of thing. And and that's great. That's, that's, uh, that's our freedom in a, a republic where we, uh, we can vote. But if bombs were dropped, for instance, on Washington, D.C., and quite literally 
obliterated the city. Think of the impact that would have on all of us as Americans and, again, probably even those outside the U.S. If you took a drone camera and flew over D.C. and and the White House had been destroyed and the, the, the other congressional buildings and the Supreme Court and you know, the wider scope and you see the Pentagon, if all of those, those, those core structures that sort of symbolize the United States of America, if they were quite literally destroyed in this, if you've been to DC, you know how it's just you know, lots of people, lots of activity, lots of things going on. And now if it were just run through with wild animals and, and overgrowth of, of weeds and you know that kind of thing, literally devastated. Think about the impact, the shock that would be, and the the emotional state we would be in as a as a nation if something like that happened. Again, 9/11 had that kind of impact, but there's an added symbolism if it's the capital of the nation that is destroyed. You, you get what I'm saying? That's what Isaiah sees and he declares to the Jews. It's like Washington, D.C. being absolutely wiped out. He sees this and the question is, why, how, who did this? And the answer is God. And he shows Isaiah this vision a hundred years before the fact, maybe more, that it's coming pretty sobering. He says, the daughter of Zion is like a shelter in a vineyard, like a watchman's hut in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. Uh, this imagery of the uh, the shelter and the hut and so on, if you think of, uh, you know, we're not much of an agricultural people anymore, but uh, if you had these huge parcels of land that were um, uh, for crops, and, and, and certainly there's some of these that still exist, but most of us don't have too much experience with this, but, you know, acres and acres, hundreds, thousands of acres of, of cropland, and they would put little huts in them. They couldn't, you know, just drive out there in the cars or the tractors and, and cover the whole field quickly. You, you would have watchmen, and you'd have, uh, even for some of the workers, you'd have little huts, little shelters, sheds, and things for, um, for these people. And what Isaiah sees here is God's people, the Jews, they're what they were a flourishing, massive field of crops, and now they're going to be like just a little hut in the middle of the of the field, uh, with very little left. In fact, he says, verse nine, unless the Lord of hosts had left us a few survivors, we would be like Sodom. We would be like Gomorrah. What does he mean by that? Well, devastated. You remember the story, right? God is furious with Sodom and Gomorrah for their wickedness, and he sends fire from heaven and wipes them all out. And Isaiah here is saying, unless the Lord had left us a few, a remnant, a few survivors, we would have been completely destroyed just as Sodom and Gomorrah were. Then God says some pretty harsh things here. Hear the word of the Lord, 
you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. So first he introduces Sodom and Gomorrah by saying, in this vision, unless God had preserved some, we would have been wiped out. And now he's actually calling his own people. God is calling the Jews Sodom and Gomorrah. That's how wicked they have become. We still use the word sodomy in English to describe grotesque sexual homosexual sin. Right? That's a word that has become synonymous with that because that's the kind of thing that was going on in Sodom. Sodomy, what we call sodomy, was a capital crime in the Old Covenant. You were to be put to death for practicing uh, this kind of sexual sin. God here is calling his people Sodom and Gomorrah. That's how corrupt they had become. Verse 11. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me? So it isn't interesting. They are continuing all of their temple service. They are continuing to offer their sacrifices, the animals in the, in the temple, the priesthood, all of that still functioning, all the things that God gave them in the old covenant. They're still doing it, but they're practicing this kind of wickedness that causes God to call them Sodom and Gomorrah. And God says, I don't want your sacrifices. I don't, what are they to me? They're nothing. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle, and I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, that would be in the temple, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me, the incense that God required them to offer. It's an abomination to me. New moon, Sabbath, the calling of assemblies, I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. And notice what he says here. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood, or literally your hands are full of blood. I'm assuming you're a Christian. You, uh, you pray, right? You want God to hear your prayer when you pray. It's one of our great hopes that he, he knows, he cares, he listens. Imagine God saying to you, I'm so fed up with your religious practice. You go to church, you sing your songs, you have your liturgy, your readings. If you're a high liturgy church, you have your sacraments, you have your, your display of, of religiosity, right? You, you have all the, the traditions. If you're in a, in a low liturgy church, you know, you got your, your band up there and you sing and you, you uh, raise your hands and you do all this. He says, I'm fed up. I, I don't want it. I'm, it's like a, a heavy burden weighing me down. God says, I want nothing more to do with any of that. And when you pray, I will hide myself from you. I'll hide my eyes. You can multiply all the prayers you want. I'm not going to listen to any of them. I'm not going to respond to a single prayer. Why? Because your hands are covered with blood. Because you're wicked people. You're Sodom and Gomorrah. You are practicing evil, living 
like the rest of the world, and yet you come here and put on your your religious show. God says, I'm done with that. I don't want to, I don't want to hear it. Christmas celebrations, Easter celebrations, regular Sunday after Sunday. Don't even bother. I'm sick of it because you don't obey me. You don't pursue righteousness. It's just empty religion. That's the, that's what he's saying. And all of these, all of these rituals, all these traditions, all these rites, God is the one who required it of the Jews all right, so the sacrifices, the temple service, the priesthood, all of that, that was, that was his instruction to them. But what was the, the intent? Do it with a pure heart. Do it with a, a sincerity. Bring the sacrifices in faith as you re- recognize the, the whole animal sacrificial system was set up as, a, as an atonement, right? The, the wages of sin is death. And the Jews knew this. And God is saying, basically, through those sacrifices, I will receive the death of those animals in place of you. You, Jews, you're the ones who have sinned. You should die because of your sin. But I'll take the death of the animal in your place, a substitution. But they got to the place where they were simply sacrificing and thinking that God was pleased with them because of the multiplied sacrifices. And the more animals they brought, the more pleasing they'd be to God. And they, they took on all the pagan idolatry. That's, that's how the nations tried to appease the gods, the false gods, thinking if we kill enough animals, if we offer enough sacrifices, if we give enough of our wealth to these gods, then the gods will be appeased in their anger and they'll be good to us and give us what we want. God says, no, it's not that I want the multiplied sacrifices as though I'm this greedy, uh, that, I, that I need the sacrifices and the more you bring me, the more you know, wealth I have. That kind of, no, it was, it was to symbolize that the wages of sin is death. And so if the Jews removed the faith element and, and, and if they didn't come and offer their sacrifices as, as a genuine expression of devotion to the Lord and seeing the need to have an atonement, then their offerings were worthless. And if they lived wicked lives, their offerings were nothing. He says, your hands are covered with blood. These are murderous people, sexual sin, all of it. God says, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to receive your... Uh, sacrifices anymore. He says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Go through the the purification rites I've given you. Cleanse yourself. They had washings, uh, they had the sacrifices, they had the burning of the incense, all the things. You go through the, the ceremonies, but don't stop with just a ceremony. Remove evil, the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. That's what he wants. Do you remember in the book of Hebrews, chapter 9, for instance, God says all these sacrifices, these rituals, they could cleanse the flesh from external things, but they couldn't actually change the heart or cleanse the heart or cleanse the conscience. The writer of Hebrews knows Isaiah 1. He knows the whole history of Israel, and he observes the Jews and, and is trying to persuade the Jews of his day 
who had converted to Christ and who were now con- considering going back to the old, test- old covenant system, he's saying, don't go back there. Those ceremonies can't do anything for your heart and your conscience. And God is saying that here in chapter one. Yeah, do wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, but go beyond just the externals. Remove the evil. Stop doing evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. This is true of both covenants. This this was true in the old covenant. It's certainly true in the new covenant. You're not pleasing to God simply, simply because you go through whatever rituals he gives us. In the new covenant, we have been given two, uh, two ceremonies, if you will. We have baptism that is a person supposed to do when he comes to faith in Jesus that symbolizes washing, symbolizes the cleansing that we have because of Christ, symbolizes the, the burial and resurrection of Jesus as we're joined with him in death and resurrection. And the second one is the Lord's Supper or communion. And we are to do those things because he told us to, because they, they're rich in their symbol. But if you do those things, but you pursue sin, God's not pleased with the ritual. No more in the new covenant than he was in the old covenant. He, he doesn't say, well, since you were baptized, since you partake of the Lord's Supper, it's all good, no matter how you live your life. And how many people go to church, quote unquote, week after week after week, who haven't ceased to do evil, they haven't repented of their sin, they're not pursuing righteousness, but some pastor, preacher gets up there every week and says, you're forgiven, you're good because you go through these ceremonies, or we just sort of feel good because we we go to church. Now, God wants a changed heart. He wants pursuit of righteousness. He loves righteousness, and he tells us to love righteousness, and that has to demonstrate in actual actions, not just uh, good intentions or religious work. The Jews were very good at the externals, but their lives were not devoted to pleasing the Lord. So God, if you recall, we looked in chapter at the beginning of chapter one, where God is, is acting here like a prosecuting attorney, where he is calling witnesses and he called heaven and earth. Uh, as witnesses, by the way, just for those of you who are who were with us last week, do you remember why God called heaven and earth? I'd, I'd love for you to put in the comments here in the chat. Uh, did I make that point? Do you know why he called heaven and earth as witness against the Jews? So if you remember that, I'd love to I'd be encouraged if somebody can answer that briefly here for us. So he, he calls heaven and earth as witness to to testify that what he's saying about Israel is true, that they are uh, they're guilty before him. And now he uses similar forensic language, courtroom language. Verse 18, come now, he says, let us reason together. Right, so I, I, I'm now calling the court, calling the, everyone to, to put our heads together and think this through. 
and he says something unexpected. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. So he's called them Sodom and Gomorrah. He says, I'm done with your sacrifices and so on. I don't, I, I, you, you're, you're, you're frustrating me. I, I don't want to have it. I've had enough. And remember, the vision was your city, your land, it's desolate. It, it's wiped out. You're going to be left like a hut in the middle of the field, just a, a, a little remnant of you. And yet God says, come, let us reason together. These scarlet sins, the red, similar to the blood on your hands, you're going to be white like snow. You're going to be white like wool. Remember I said, as we were looking at Deuteronomy, by the way, Tim, you got it. Yes, from Deuteronomy 30, 31, 32, uh, the calling there way back a thousand years prior to Isaiah, God, through Moses, called heaven and earth as witness of what Israel was come was going to do in the coming years, the coming centuries. And now... God is reminding the Jews, I told you a thousand years ago, you would do this. And heaven and earth were watching, as it were, uh, and, and are bearing out what I said would happen. And remember when we looked at the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32, we have the severe warnings of judgment, but then hope, the remnant, and it even broadened out to the nations. Here, same thing. Sodom and Gomorrah, guilty. I'm fed up with all of your offerings and so on. But though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. What this should do for the reader, for the hearer, for the one who's, uh, who's hearing Isaiah predict this, they should be asking the question, how? How? How will our sins be white as snow? And here's again, a call to repentance, a call to faithfulness. If you consent and obey, you will eat the best of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. Truly, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So as Isaiah is seeing this vision and pronouncing the coming coming devastation, the destruction of the city and all of that, there's always hope with God. Right? He, you know, the New Testament describes God as being patient and forbearing. When you read this, the history of Israel and you read the prophets and the rest of it, you see that, that uh, forbearance. You see his patience. Uh, Paul talks about this in Romans 2. Uh, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, but he's been patient, giving you the opportunity to repent. And the problem is people presume on his patience and they don't repent. And eventually his judgment does come. But all through Isaiah here, we're going to see these, these predictions of God's wrath. I'm going to destroy your city. I'm going to wipe you out. But there's, you can avoid this if you'll repent, if you'll, if you'll obey Remember, those were the terms of the covenant with Israel. If they disobeyed, he will destroy them. If they obey, he will bless them and prosper them. And, and he gives them the warning. There is a, an opportunity for your sins to be atoned for. You have to obey. You have to stop doing the wickedness. And if you do, you'll eat the best of the land. But if you refuse, 
I will destroy your city. I will bring the sword and you will literally be slaughtered. We know how this turns out. Again, this is 100 years before the fall of Jerusalem. And uh, probably it's, uh, it's before the fall of the northern kingdom, though we don't know the timing of all of this. Remember, uh, Isaiah's prophecy was from about 740 B.C. until around 687. And the fall of the northern kingdom was 722. So we don't know when this vision occurred. And, and the vision is about the southern kingdom, not so much the uh, northern kingdom. But they didn't, they didn't heed the warning. And uh, we know what happened in 586. God did just destroy the city. That's a big deal. That's a big deal. Again, that's why I, I drew the analogy with, uh, with D.C., Washington, D.C., uh, that's a big deal, and, and he gave them forewarning. Imagine for us as Americans, if God had warned us for decades, if America doesn't repent of their sin, I'm going to destroy D.C. or New York or L.A. or you know any of the thriving. But there's something about the capital that is... Uh, more gripping. And then for the Jews, it wasn't just the capital, but it was where the temple was, which was the heart of their relationship with God. That was God's house. And God says, I'm going to destroy it all. We learned some things about the character of God. He does not simply turn a blind eye to sin. He doesn't like empty rituals. There's a point at which God will say, I've had enough of your empty rituals. And he is a God of justice, and he will not simply stand by forever and watch sinners, his people, commit sin, uh, those who call themselves by his name. Some interesting things for us to think about as, as Christians, no matter where you live. I know we've got uh, Tim Verified. He's in the UK, um, and he says here he remembers exactly where he was on 9-11. Yeah. Uh, wherever you are, as a Christian, uh, it's important to understand the character of God. And, and yeah, the new covenant is different. We have a forgiveness that was not offered in the same way through the old covenant. But uh, we can certainly learn the lesson that God does not like empty religiosity. He doesn't like the, the ceremony that is not a, a person who is passionate about pleasing him and obeying him. All right, our time is, uh, is fleeing here. Are there any questions or comments you have about this section of Isaiah 1? Um, it's, it's sobering. Again, I, we have to realize what Isaiah here is seeing is this is serious stuff. Imagine being Isaiah. Imagine being Isaiah having to uh, go through the city Go to the, the priests and the other leaders, the king, and say, this is the vision God gave me. This is what's coming upon us as, as Jews. Uh, and, of course, most of them didn't listen. Well, none of them listened. Right? They thought he was crazy. In fact, they, uh, they persecuted him and tried to do everything they could to shut him down uh, later on. So tomorrow, as we continue, uh, we will see further rebuke of uh, Israel, uh, Judah. And, uh, and then, so we'll finish up chapter one tomorrow. And then chapter two, if you want to really get the mind 
working and uh, well, just read read the first four verses of chapter two. We won't we won't get there tomorrow. Uh, that'll be Thursday probably, right? This is Tuesday. <laughs> Having the day off uh, threw me off, but we'll get there Thursday. But read the first four verses of chapter two. Look at it very very carefully. And see if it uh, raises some questions in your mind based on your eschatological views. All right, folks. uh, Lord be with you today. Have a great Tuesday. And Lord willing, we will see you tomorrow. God bless.